Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis, welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for this Wednesday, the 10th of May. And you can listen to the podcast on your smartphone at Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple iTunes, or by going to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, imports to China unexpectedly shrank by 7.9% in April, the most in a year, and far below market expectations of a flat reading. This was the seventh straight month of falling purchases amid weak domestic demand, lower commodity prices and a stronger dollar. Exports from China grew 8.5% from a year ago after a surprising 14.8% surge in March, and that was the second straight month of expansions in shipments amid efforts from Beijing to increase trade. President Biden is meeting with congressional leaders at the White House in discussions aimed at averting the first ever default by the federal government as soon as next month. House Republicans have demanded deep spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, but Mr Biden and Democrats in Congress maintain that the federal borrowing limit should be raised without preconditions. New York Fed President John Williams said Tuesday that the US Central Bank hasn't ruled out further rate rises. He cautioned that interest rate increases will take a while to work their way through the economy before inflation returns to an acceptable level. Asked about the potential for a pause, he said we haven't said we are done raising rates and if additional policy firming is appropriate, we'll do that. Chinese investment into Europe fell to its lowest point in almost a decade last year. The overall level of Chinese investment into the EU and UK declined to about 8.7 billion US dollars in 2022. The level of investment was a fraction of the $52 billion recorded in 2016 and the lowest total recorded since 2013. On today's programme, I'm joined by Wealth Preservation Specialist Enzio von Feil and Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. In a low-volume day on Wall Street, U.S. stocks close lower ahead of key consumer price inflation data tomorrow. Traders were also cautious as political leaders met to discuss the debt ceiling. And adding to the negative sentiment, the New York Fed's John Williams pushed back against the notion that the Fed has paused from raising interest rates. The S&P 500 dropped half a percent to 4,119. The Dow saw a decline of 57 points, that's 0.2% to 33,562. The Nasdaq Composites dropped 0.6% to 12,180. Chinese markets were weaker as China's imports plunged and its trade surplus increased. Hong Kong stocks snapped a three-day winning streak and losses accelerated in the afternoon session with technology, healthcare and basic materials leading the declines. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 429 points, that's 2.1%, to 19,868. And futures markets are pointing to a flat open for the Hang Seng this morning. The Hang Seng Tech Index slumped 3%. In mainland China, the Shanghai Composite fell 1.1% to 3,358. Elsewhere in the markets, the British pound is close to a one-year high against the dollar and a five-month high against the euro, as recent data shows the UK economy is performing better than expected. And Treasury yields, oil and gold are all higher this morning. 
You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Wednesday morning guests. We have with us wealth preservation specialist Enzio von Fahl. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter and Enzio. Let's start with the, uh, the China trade data. Imports to China unexpectedly shrank by 7.9% year on year in April to about 205 billion US dollars. That was far below market expectations for a flat reading, and it compared with a 1.4% drop a month earlier. This was the seventh straight month of falling purchases amid weak domestic demand, lower commodity prices and a stronger dollar. South Korean exports to China, which are a leading indicator of China's imports, were down 26.5% in April. That continues 10 consecutive months of declines. Exports from China grew 8.5% from a year earlier to about $295 billion in April. That's above market consensus of an 8% rise. And it also, um, after a surprising 14.8% surge in March. And finally, China's trade surplus. That surged to $90.21 billion in April from $49.5 billion in the same period a year earlier. And that easily beats market forecasts of $71.6 billion. Enzio, this data, I think it tells us quite a bit, doesn't it, about the state of um, of maybe China's uh, domestic economy? Yes, I think that the economic time in China remains one of excess supply of goods and excess supply of money. Um, it's bolstered by the fact that the foreign multinationals operating in China have had a pretty bad time. The FT just yesterday reported that uh, on the 8th of May, excuse me, imported that the MNCs have disappointing earnings on a slower than expected economic rebound in China. And the article focused on victims such as Estee Lauder, Starbucks, mm. Hilton, Finnair and Colgate, Colgate Palmolive. So it all just ties in with our view that we continue holding China was not a Lazarus. It was not rebounding from the dead in the first quarter. And I think it's just going to get stuck in a rut for quite some time, I'm afraid. Those, those companies that you mentioned, I mean, you're right, this, the, the China has been cropping up a lot in US earnings reports. Do you think maybe companies overestimated how quickly China was going to bounce back from COVID-19 lockdowns? And as a result, that's why we're seeing these disappointing earnings. I think that's part of the story, but I think also you can't wipe out a trend. The trend is not always my friend, but it's there. And I think the trend in China has been slower growth um, for a variety of reasons, which also perhaps domestic. But I, th I think that this excess supply of goods, the economic time, will has been there for some time and will remain really until basically the global economy starts starts picking up again, which is some quarters down the road in my mind. Mm. Mark, you, you, a lot of your members at IMA Asia, they, they operate in China. They have businesses on the mainland. Mm. Does this chime with what they're saying um, and what yeah, they're seeing? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, maybe it's over overstating, but they're scrambling a bit at the moment. Not, you know, most of them were pretty cautious to begin with. Mm. But these... You know, the results on the ground, especially for most companies, have been disappointing. And some of them have been mentioned in the press and others. B2B businesses also generally mm -hmm. have been have been having challenges. Fast-moving consumer goods, on the other hand, high-end luxury goods, 
still pretty strong. But clearly, for various reasons, Chinese consumers aren't spending hmm. at levels that were expected, not expecting it to come back to what it was immediately, but even even relatively low expectations. Now, maybe that will change. Their hope is that Q2 looks better, Q3 looks better, especially the second half of the year. Um, but no one's quite sure about that. So they're looking to see what their alternatives are. If not China, then what? Mm. That's a tough question to answer. Yes. The, their expectations are, 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 have missed, haven't they? Certainly in the first quarter, because they were hoping that with the end of all these pandemic restrictions, there was going to be you know, quite a big pickup, quite a big boom. But that, that hasn't really happened. No, it it hasn't. Nonetheless, the I think the the government is seems to be doing what it can to try to move the economy, especially to uh, stimulating domestic demand. And you know, Enzio can comment on this too. Over time, that that may have an impact, and maybe they're moving in the right direction. Mm. But in the short to me- medium term, at least this year, uh, it's problematic so far. I agree with Mark. I think that it's it's just going to go slowly does it and i also again think that the the whole idea of of trying to guide the economy which she is doing is 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 in some ways quite laudable but it does have its pitfalls as hayek always always teaches you can't really tell the market what to do Mm. (laughs) and we had positive export growth eight and a half percent although that has slowed from 14 and a half percent uh, year on year in March. How how do you explain that? Because we're seeing, you know, hearing all these stories about slowing um, global growth, but China's exports do seem to be holding up. Or is that because, you know, we've, we've got a base effect also as well. When you compare it with a year ago, things were pretty bad, weren't they? Well, I, I guess I'll just take over for a second. I, I think that part of this is just the, the my old chest that the multinationals producing in China are very much at fault for China's trade surplus or America's trade deficit just by virtue of replacing exports going to China or indeed creating more exports coming from China back to the U.S. So I I think that that's part of the reason. And of course, also just good old-fashioned cost savings. We know that labor costs are cheaper in China than they are in Europe, for instance. So there are a number of factors that that would that are go beyond just the cyclical. Maybe this is a stronger cycle than we're thinking. Logic. Mm. Mark, are your members also yeah, talking yeah, but, about the global well, I economy? Hope, I hope it is. But it looks, you know, it looks like going forward in the year, it, it might not get better. Really? You know, you yes. talked about the worries Quite. about about, uh, you know, about recession or slowdown in, in the West, especially in, in Europe and the U.S. Clearly, that's not good for China either, and, mm. and also might affect part of the rest of Asia. So I think this is this is not going to be, a, exports isn't going to be a strong story in, in 2023. Yeah. Mm. So what, what should the government do then? Um, what, what, people are talking about stimulus. What, what type of stimulus would help? Because maybe, maybe just cutting interest rates, that isn't going to do the trick, is it? So it's got to find no. some other ways. I think, if I may just butt in, I think that a lot of this has to do with the property sector and with the woes stemming from that and also the difficulty to migrate within China, this hukou system. So I'm told impedes a lot of just just fluid fluidity within the economy but i think on the property sector i think that these huge companies that have in effect gone bust and then the banks and the the rising debt levels amongst the provinces 
I think like something I read a figure like twenty six trillion dollars worth of debt just at the local government level. Those are pretty scary figures that you can't just sort of like Merlin put a wand and, and hope that they go away. So I think there's some very deep seated structural issues that go way beyond cyclical ointments. Hmm. Yeah, the, the government's trying to burst the debt bubble. And, you know, they've had, you know, maybe they're in the process of doing this, but there's still too much leverage. There's still defaults, um, mainly offshore bond market. Housing sector is not going to be coming back, I don't think. Yes. And certainly not to 25% of the market again. Mm-hmm. And so, got to look for something else. <laughs> or got to look for a compensation. And what what could be the something else? Could maybe um, Southeast Asia, you know, some of the developing countries there, like Vietnam, for example, and you know, are these countries maybe that could pick up some of the slack for for manufacturers who are based on the mainland? I think to a limited extent, and they are already, but you know, it doesn't. It's hard to make up very quickly mm. uh, for what yes. what they had in China, both in terms of the actual actual volume. And, and quality, but also the ecosystems, which we talked about before. Mm. The China system may be not perfect, but it's one that fits a lot of companies quite well, including international companies. Uh, Vietnam, India, many other places all yep. have issues, much mm. stronger issues. Doesn't mean they won't move forward, like Apple and many others are trying to do, but it's not like they're moving everything from China. And are you hearing people talk about their jobs? Are they worried about losing their jobs? Is that one of the reasons maybe why consumers aren't spending as much as um, economists have been hoping for? In terms, in terms of the local market, as you probably have heard, the younger, younger generation in China does have higher employ, unemployment levels than they, they'd like to do. As far as companies, a lot of companies have cut back, international companies have cut back on people in terms of their operations for various other reasons. Also, in trying to get talent, which is much harder now than it was before for a variety of reasons. Mm. Let me ask you Peter, about... If I could just... Yeah, sure, Andrew. Yeah. No, I just think one way out, putting on my German hat, I think that if China were to really vigorously push vocational training, there's yeah. probably an educational mismatch going on in China, like in the West, most certainly... Too few guys who could repair cars, too many PhDs running around. And so I think that if they were to really push the vocational training, that would also take up at least quite a sizable chunk of the slack in this youth unemployment. Mm. Okay, understood. But but NGO mentions the reference to education. I think that's probably right. At the same time, when you compare China with some of those other markets I mentioned, that's where China still has a big advantage, right? Mm. Let's yes. Face it, in terms of the, the number of yeah. people that are educated oh, yeah. and the variety and the engineers alone is, is staggering. Tiger moms alone. Yeah. Let me ask you about another economy, which is also, uh, uh, you know, a good bellwether for what's going on globally. Taiwan, Taiwanese exports, they fell for the eighth straight month because of weak de- global demand. Exports from ta- Taiwan dropped 13.3% year on year, although that was better than the 19.1% plunge uh, seen in the previous month. Taiwan's economy, of course, very trade orientated and exports account for around 70% of Taiwan's $800 billion economy. Shipments of 
electronics make up about a third of that total. And in April, exports of electronic products fell 8.6%. And on a country-by-country basis, exports decreased the most to China and Hong Kong down 22%. That's Taiwan's largest market. And then exports to the USA dropped 10.3%. And even to the Asian countries, they were down by about 7.1%. Um, NCO, Mark, what, what do you make of this? Because this is, it is an important sign, isn't it, really, of just maybe the state of the global economy? It's it's the imports of a country that are telltale. The Taiwanese exports to the US fell by 10.3% is, I think, again, revealing of the fact that in the U.S. we have what I read in the FT recently called a freight recession. So you've got a worsening economic time in America, which is an excess demand for money, excess booming, looming excess supply of goods, heralded by a freight recession. In other words, less movement within the economy. And I think that that is then reflective of this drop of 10.3% year-on-year of the Taiwanese exports to America, because as we all know, Taiwan exports a lot of consumer electronics to the States. I think that's, and and chips and, and input factors. So I think that again ties in with our overall rather bearish view on, on the American economic outlook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of that's electronics, as you pointed out. Yeah. And, uh, of course, and that's very important for Taiwan. And demand has dropped off. Where there was, you know, there was so much demand for the past three years. And now part of it's because uh, because markets are a little bit slower. Part of it's because part of uh, some of it's been already uh, already filled. Uh, various other reasons. But so there's a little drop in that. And of course, that affects Taiwan a lot more than other markets. It, make, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, if it wasn't for artificial intelligence, where there's actually still huge demand globally for, for high-end know, uh, chips, it would be even worse, wouldn't it? Because yeah. that's almost sort of holding it up from, mm-hmm. from being better than it could be, uh, worse than it could be. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's turn our attention to uh, to the U.S. Um, we've got uh, the debt ceiling negotiations going on. President Biden's meeting with congressional leaders um, doesn't seem to be an awful lot of progress. Um, they're, they're both sticking to their, their guns here. The Republicans saying that there's got to be some deep cuts in spending. Uh, the Democrats saying that that's a separate issue. This is about uh, paying for previous debts that have already been incurred. And the Janet Yellen warning there'll be an absolute economic catastrophe um, if this isn't resolved um how do we get out of this because we're getting closer and closer to this deadline and um of june the first where the treasury says it's going to run out of money and markets are getting more and more nervous i mean one of the issues is that this time compared with other times well well the leadership i think of both parties uh, understands the uh the dangers and the and the implications of debt ceiling not being extended uh, the rank and file, especially uh, in the Republican Party, maybe don't, or maybe they don't feel that that's what they really want to do. They really want to cut the mm-hmm. deficit and 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 reach their uh, reach their objectives, which probably isn't going to happen. But what makes it is much messier. Saying that, although there, not surprisingly, there were no substantial results from the meeting today. At least, no public results. There were hints. Uh, President Biden sort of hinted that he might he might be open to some sort of compromise, which would mean kicking the can down the road. Mm. Not ideal, but, you know, going to se- September and finding a deal that way. And I suspect that he would have potentially tacit support from the Senate leadership, 
the Republican leadership as well. Whether that would make the difference or not, given uh, Speaker McCarthy's difficult political position in his own caucus, it's hard to tell. But at least that there were signs that that might be the direction. It's too early to tell. But I, you know, I can't imagine them letting this go past the deadline, although we've been surprised before. Let's put it this way. And uh, we've had a downgrade, absolutely. Can I just add to what Mark was saying that the, according, I think it was to the FT of yesterday, the there's only an overlap of six days this May between when Biden is in Washington and Congress is in session. Yeah. So in effect, I think there are only six days to do this thing. And um, I think the market run-up, frankly, is going to be a little bit trickier. Peter, you come out of bond markets. You know this as well as I do, if not better, I'm sure, that the but markets tend to discount things. Already the six-month money is at 5.4% in mm-hmm. the U.S., mm-hmm. and that's way above the 10-year, the two-year, and the five-year yield. So I think the market's getting a little bit skittish, and again, just bolstered by this rather annoying news that there are only six days there's six working days left to get this thing sorted out before this i believe it's the first of june deadline but i stand to be corrected there okay finally before we go i just want to ask you about um about europe um china's talking about retaliating if if the eu puts sanctions on its companies for um for avoiding uh the sanctions on on on, uh, on weapons to ukraine china's foreign minister uh Gang is on a three nation visit he's visiting france germany and norway um at the moment and he said beijing will defend businesses strictly and firmly this is another sort of angle isn't it to all the um the the trade frictions that are going on between China and the U.S. because we shouldn't forget that obviously Europe is a big market for uh, for China um, and this is also an area of tension with EU leaders. It's easier for the U.S. to attack China and vice versa because they're monoliths while in Europe, of course, you have to get the consensus of all the members. So I think that the whole sanctions fight with, with Europe is going to be a little bit less united if you will on the european front because there will be various companies in germany or in france and austria doesn't matter who uh, are very against sanctions others who are very pro so it's it's such it's it's going to be a little bit more of a mosaic and a puzzle as opposed to this monolith of, of the china u.s tussle yeah but we're getting it's true but we're getting more tit for tat between yeah. china and europe at the moment more than we had before and there are some specific issues between both of them and getting threats from both sides. And as you, as we know, uh, Secretary for Trade, Lord Johnson, was just in Hong Kong. Hmm. And and that that was very common in the UK within, within his own party. At the same time, the reception he got was polite, but uh, also pointed out the differences between China and Hong Kong and, and the UK in this case in terms of trade and and uh, geopolitical issues in general, yes, which is something things that are going to be repeated time and time again. I think. And then what's uh, what's also notable is Chinese investment into Europe is just plunged, according to this study yeah. by Rhodium Group and uh, a think tank called Merix. The overall level of Chinese investment down twenty two percent last year. Um, it's certainly affecting. Uh, I, I presume that's because you know countries, governments uh, are scrutinising a lot more these deals yeah. that are going on. 
it's, it's political uncertainty also. I think that that just no no business, as Mark Paul knows, as we all know, businesses don't like uncertainty, and I think that's going to weigh in quite a bit on these direct investment figures, really around the world. Yeah, the U.S. has doubled down on their scrutiny of both investments going in and out uh, between China and the U.S. And Europe is beginning to do that again, as Angel pointed out, sporadically, not always consistently but it's beginning to have an impact. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. You heard there Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Enzio von Fahl, who is a wealth preservation specialist. I'm joined now by John Byrne, who's Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Very good morning to you, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, indeed. Let me ask you about uh, Warren Buffett. He's been talking about Japan um, at his annual shareholders meeting, Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting in Omaha over the weekend. And he likes particularly Japanese trading companies because he owns over 7% of of, of five of those. Um, and he's talking about maybe some more um, investments in Japan. His uh, his successor, Greg, Greg Abel, called those investments an incredible um, investment. What is Warren Buffett seeing? that maybe other investors aren't because Japan has been a, a sort of a perennial underperformer, hasn't it? Yes, that's that's right. Uh, Warren Buffett had, had visited Japan recently as well as some other um, US uh, investment houses. And what I would say is that at the moment, we are, of course, in a period of, let's say, transition in Japan um, as regards, uh, you know, the, the level of the yen as well as the, the monetary policy situation. So, it may be opportune uh, for further investment uh, in Japan, uh, given that scenario. So, for example, we are also seeing um, some signs that inflation may be um, becoming more sustainable compared to what we have seen in the past, where deflation was, of course, um, not conducive to um, flows of of investment, certainly in equities. Um, And also there's uh, a sense that there may be some underperformance of uh, Japanese firms um, and, and therefore, by extension, there's a large scope for growth as a result of that. So I think uh, there are a number of factors um, that point towards a, an opportune uh, moment to, to re-enter the equity market in Japan, which is largely uh, stagnant in, since 2018, I would say. Mm. And are foreigners showing more interest now? I presume that you know, if Warren Buffett is looking, that would prompt foreign fund managers to, to also at least take a look um, as well. Absolutely, yeah. Warren Buffett is not the only uh, person that is looking at this, of course. There are a number of other uh, U.S. Uh, financiers looking uh, to expand in Japan as well. And, you know, as I said, the, the level of the yen, although it has appreciated somewhat uh, in recent months, it's still at uh, a very low level historically. So that makes it uh, uh, sort of a, a nice um, moment to, to enter the market from, from that perspective. And also, as I said, the inflation outlook uh, may point towards more growth over the medium term, at least. And what is the new governor, Mr. Ueda, going to do? We we had some data yesterday. Household spending um, in Japan declined in real terms by 1.9%. And there was also data which showed real wages fell 2.9%. That's the 12th consecutive decline. Um, that, that rather backs up, I suppose, his view that, that interest rates need to, to remain low for a while. Yes, that's right. So the first meeting took place at the end of uh, April. 
and with rates being held uh, as they are, so no change in policy. And what we've, what we've seen from the data yesterday, of course, backs up that, as you rightly point out. Uh, there's still a need for some uh, monetary policy accommodation. That said, you know, we also must look at what's happening with inflation. So I think that the current level of inflation is above 3%. It's above the, the target of the Bank of Japan, which is, of course, at 2%. Um, there are uncertainties as to whether this level of over 3% would be sustainable. Mm. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of uncertainty, of course. And I think that in the, in the latter half of 2023, consumption is uh, expected to pick up. And this is also linked to, you know, the downgrade of the pandemic, which is completely um, removed now as a, as a restriction since May 8th. And th this should trigger some uh, flows of um, consumption growth. Um, and and that, will, that will also obviously affect the inflation side from the perspective of domestic demand. Um, over the period till the end of the year, the Bank of Japan still sees inflation coming in at in or around the target of 2%. But of course, you know, this will need to be monitored uh, in, the coming, in the coming months. And, and do you think um, real wage growth, can it turn positive uh, at some point in the, in the next year or so? The, the unions sort of got quite a good deal, didn't they, out of the, uh, out of the employers in, terms, in the annual sort of wage discussions. Um, but this is going to be a key issue, isn't it, really, that's going to dictate uh, the, the economy going forward, whether consumers are going to spend more. And likewise, that's obviously linked to their, their wages, their income. Yeah, very good point. You know, the large firms have agreed uh, nominal wage rises of 3.8%, which is, of course, um, outstripping the current inflation that we're seeing at the moment. So that's positive for real wage growth. Um, but, you know, what's crucial is how small and medium firms are able to um, react in terms of passing on uh, wage rises. And there may be a little bit more difficulty there. Um, it remains uncertain. Um, and, you know, given that these SMEs, um, you know, account for around 70% of overall employment, the extent to which they can pass on uh, wage rises uh, that outstrip inflation will be very important. Uh, there are some signs that a small and medium-sized uh, enterprises will be able to uh, pass on um, wage rises. We also see some underlying uh, inflationary effects, so not just the uh, inflation that includes uh, energy and food, but also some impact on underlying inflation, which would point towards um, some impact on, on wages and wage inflation. But I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's a crucial issue and it will really determine whether we will see uh, a shift in course in monetary policy over the course of the year. And the, the other point I would say is whether these wage rises will be temporary or whether we will see some change so there, there's still some uncertainty at the moment particularly on the sme side and where is the growth going to come from in the economy we we had a couple of days ago the world health organization they've they've downgraded covid um now and saying it's not a not a global emergency anymore is that going to help um tourism and, and the economy is that where we may may see some of the growth coming from certainly that will be one aspect which is going to help growth um, as you know, um, monetary policy is still accommodative. So we still see for the course of 2023, um, consumption and investment, domestic investment, having an important role to play in driving growth. Although we did see that uh, negative uh, 
impact yesterday in terms of household spending. Um, but over the course of the year, we, we expect the domestic side to really um, underpin growth. The, the risks, I think, really are on the external side. So uh, net exports will still be under pressure due to the global uh, situation, weak external demand. Uh, what happens in the U.S. in terms of uh, recession risks and possibility of a hard landing in the U.S. will all obviously spill over not only to Japan, but to other regions as well. We see the yen very weak at the moment. Well, sorry, not very weak at the moment, but uh, weak historically at the moment. But we don't see this translating into a rise in net exports for the two reasons, really. One is that the external situation is is quite uh, volatile at the moment in, in terms of uh, developments in advanced economies. And as well as that, um, the supply chain in Asia is quite reasonably focused. So even if the exchange rate depreciates, it does not necessarily translate into a, um, a, a rise in net exports, which we would have seen, like, you know, if we go back many years in time. Mm. And, and what, another thing that's often talked about when it comes to Japan is um, obviously boosting the workforce and in particular trying to get more women um, into the workforce. Obviously, that's dependent upon having sort of adequate child care uh, facilities. The government said it's going to double child care um, um, spending. So what sort of impact is that going to have? Yes, well, you know, the demographic situation in Japan and other economies as well is a, is a really uh, a hindrance to development. And, you know, investment in uh, child care, for example, can, one of, can be one of the factors which helps to address that. Um, I think the issue in the case of Japan, of course, is that, you know, there are fiscal constraints. So there is some uncertainty as to how this can be financed. And, you know, if we, if we look at the fiscal situation in Japan and consider a scenario where monetary policy tightening would take place, then it's a really delicate balancing act as to when... Um, you know, that would become sort of unsustainable. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that certainly it's a positive uh, move to address the demographic situation to encourage uh, female participation in the labour force and help on uh, childcare support and, and these types of issues. But I think that um, there's, there needs to be important uh, considerations made on the fiscal side whilst also ensuring that there's some medium-term fiscal consolidation in place. Now, Japan's going to be in focus quite a lot over the next fortnight. We've got the G7 finance ministers meeting from tomorrow, and then next week the G7 summit in Hiroshima. Um, although it seems a little bit unclear now if President Biden's going to attend, given that he said he's going to stay in Washington if the debt ceiling issue isn't resolved. But nevertheless, what, what should we be looking for from this uh, G7 summit? Well, for the meeting in Nagata with the uh, finance ministers and central bank governors, which is taking place this week, I think that um, discussions on how to make the global financial system more resilient will be a key issue. Um, we have seen since the last meeting, which I think took place in Washington in April, uh, more amplified uncertainty in, in global markets. So I think as a result of that, there will be increased uh, attention paid on global financial stability. As to the summit itself, which is, will be next week, I think that an important consideration is, um, you know, when we're looking at global goals on sustainable development and these types of issues, a key aspect is to involve uh, developing economies in the discussion somehow. You know, 
in the absence of that, the, the achievement of global goals uh, would uh, be largely futile. And I think that the G7 this year um, will make strong efforts on, um, you know, having a sort of a partnership type of approach with developing economies in, in uh, the pursuit of global goals on development. And we've seen in uh, the last sort of couple of weeks a thaw in relations between Japan and, and South Korea, talking about a closer alliance, a three-way alliance maybe with with the US. How much is that going to, this, this rapprochement, if you like, between Japan and South Korea, um, how big an impact is that going to have on, on the G7 discussions? Well, I think that, you know, this is an important factor which will help trade cooperation in the region. And it's just one example of that. Um, you know, I think that the reopening of China, if we if we look at that for a moment, that would be very helpful for not only global growth, but regional growth as well. Um, so I think that while the upside risks are clearly there in that in that case, there are some downside risks related to the impact it could have on commodity prices or, uh, you know, redirection of capital flows to other regions. So I think that, um, you know, enhanced uh, cooperation um, and multilateral talks between different economies, Korea, Japan, um, and other economies in the region will be will be helpful if we look at the bigger picture. Um, so I think that will be something that is very much in line with what the G7 are trying to do, which is repair multilateral fractures that we have seen in recent uh, years and uh, the, the shift towards economic fragmentation that we usually see after crises. And of course, it's, it's very important to get those uh, fragmentation issues solved in order to pursue on, on global goals, on climate, on, on other uh, sustainable development and, and sustainable growth at the global and at the regional level. John, thanks very much for speaking with me this morning. Thank you very much, Peter. That's John Byrne, who's Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And thank you very much for, for listening this morning as well. Uh, do please take a look at my daily newsletter, which has more information on some of the topics we've been discussing today. You'll find that at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at Wingfung Financial Group, and Raymond Young, who is Greater China Chief Economist at ANZ. I'll see you tomorrow. Money Talk.